Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I'm host and editor-in-chief, Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with industry leaders and thinkers about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. This episode is brought to you by Fisher & Paykel a global company that challenges conventional appliance design to create products that deliver to genuine human need. Visit fisherpaykel.ca for more. There is saying and there is doing. Both are important, and in many cases, one can't happen without the other. But eventually, the latter must happen. Otherwise, the former has been abandoned and rendered meaningless. We all saw conversations about diversity and representation kicked into high gear during the summer of 2020, as companies and organizations queued up to give their official statements on diversity and inclusion in the face of intense scrutiny coming from social upheavals. And deservedly so, for while Canadian workplaces may appear more diverse than ever before, that appearance belies the reality that diverse representation is commonly found at the lower end of company hierarchies with clear gaps in positions of influence and power at senior leadership levels. What is interesting is how professionals in the design industry think of themselves as having progressive and inclusive mindsets, that it is baked into the very nature of what they do. However, a homogeneity within design leadership, coupled with a fear that even engaging in these conversations has slowed the acceptance of ways to increase and advance diversity. Yet, the reality is, If done for the right reasons, these actions can directly impact business sustainability and ultimately its profitability. In this episode of Bevel, we sit down with Ian Rolston, founder of the design equity consultancy firm Decanthropy, to explore complex issues embedded in any conversation about representation in the design industry. We discuss what must happen to move the needle from talk to action and zero in on three key areas that include design education, professional practice, and the role of advocacy. Ian is a creative soul, a thought leader, design professional, and speaker, inspired by connecting humanity to what matters most. His insights, studio workshops, and project collaborations focus clients on leading with one sense of humanity to inform the design process, shift thinking, and transform ROI to reimagine new possibilities for the spaces we live in. Okay, Ian, I have to say right out of the gate, it is a pleasure to be here talking with you. I love talking with you. Uh, you Likewise. bring fascinating insights. I love the things you've been doing. Um, I also love the ideas you've been uh, articulating, and I think these are conversations that obviously people want to be having, and they're feeling more uh, involved in the conversation. So I want to say thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, oh thank you for, for having me, Peter. It's a, it's, a, it's a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Um, let's start off with some pretty basic statements. Okay. Uh, part of the conversation having to do with representation and design, I've always found fascinating mm-hmm. on multiple levels, starting with of all of the industries, so to speak, like let's call design an industry, of all the industries, right. I would think design is almost one of the ones more primed to be a little more uh, ready out of the gate to deal with this issue because the very concept of design is to 
turn into a physical reality, a representation of something. Yes. People move through space through representations of how space, how they interact with space, how what space means to them, what right. objects mean to them. I'm going to throw a lot of things under the same umbrella when I talk about design. So we're going to talk, it'll include space, product, sure. uh, you know, uh, wayfinding, all those kinds of things. Sure, sure. Um, so that's just so everyone knows that's what I mean when I talk about design. But like I said, I, to me, it's fascinating that of all the uh, industries, of all the uh, you know creative out- output industries, I would think the design industry should already be slightly ready to go on this. And yet, in a weird way, design seems right. to be struggling one of the most when it comes to grappling with issues of representation, right. issues of inclusion, um, and how everything gets brought together. So what I want to talk with you today about as much as possible is the actual industry itself. Okay. Um, talking about how the design industry is represented, how it represents itself, uh, what can be done about that, what right. are some of the barriers and the hurdles that we need to start addressing in real practical senses, um, and then you know come at it from a few different angles. Uh, and I say that because this is a bit of a long-winded intro, but it, to me, I see the industry having sort of two ends. And right. I don't want to phrase it in a hierarchy of like a, you know, a higher and a lower end. So I'll, I'll flip it on its side and just say two, two different ends. We have sort of entry to the industry. Right. So it's like the early stages. And then we have the sort of the, the side of the spectrum where the industry is being run by people. Right. So entry to the industry and then who runs the industry kind of thing. Right, right. So let's start the conversation with the first part. And I'm really interested to know what you think about um, how the industry is seen from the outside world, mm-hmm. how it attracts or doesn't attract right, people right. to want to pursue design as a career, um, and then sort of what are the entry points. And to me, one of the key ones is education, how absolutely how design is educated, how people decide to pursue design education as a gateway to a professional long-term career. Right. So let's start off with that. I'm curious how you uh, perceive the design industry both being represented and represents itself to the outside world and potential designers. Right. Peter, that's a big, big, big question. I know. I apologize. <laughs> but I, I guess these are the uh, questions that at least start some conversations to uh, move some thinking forward around these issues. I think I'd start first with what you mentioned. Uh, design is at its core about people. Um, and I find when we forget that people are at the core of design, we start to see some of the challenges that we've uh, been trying to uh, address over more specifically over the last couple of years, at least having more open dialogue about what representation means to our industry. And so as you talk about the sort of entry to design, there are specific barriers that I think that present themselves pretty clearly for uh, underrepresented communities. Uh, And really it is first that the perception uh, of design is really seen as something that is for a particular uh, class of person, people. Uh, It it is almost seen as sort of a luxurious sort of... uh, um, affordance that really isn't necessarily applicable, uh, applicable to sort of the, the real rigors of daily life. 
Um, and so for a lot of communities, the design isn't really at the heart of uh, being able to have a career, provide for your family, um, and really contribute to your, your community in some senses. Uh, when I look at my own uh, experience, design was not something that we talked about in a formal way in terms of a profession. Design was happening all around me, uh, but it's not until I actually uh, was told about uh, design from a high school uh, teacher that I understood that there was a specific industry um, and the practice of design. Uh, I understood it more on a level of, um, uh, let's just say, crafting and building and, and creating things because my, my father and my uncles were all uh, in, in trades and in construction. And so I understood the idea of making things. But sort of the process of making things uh, wasn't really made uh, known to me from the perspective of, of design. And so I think when we start talking about entry, we have to sort of look at how design is being communicated to underrepresented communities uh, in terms of its core value. And that is really creating spaces uh, that are inclusive for, for all, uh, spaces that actually aid uh, in one sense of um, sort of productivity and living and providing uh, care for, uh, of course, family and community. So design in itself is something far more um, important than sort of the aesthetic sort of narrative that we hear a lot of and that we see a lot of. Uh, we see those representations in uh, magazines and television. Uh, but we don't necessarily talk a lot about uh, the impact that design has on people. Okay, let's unpack that a bit because there's a lot involved in that. When you're talking in those terms, it instantly starts to uh, a bunch of different thoughts erupt in my in my head about mm -hmm. the the causal relationships between a lot of what you're describing and why things are the way they are. And I want to just for a bit talk about that and you made a very interesting uh, uh, per, you know personal um, uh, uh, comment about how like in your family you know, construction and making things was there but the idea of design as a career as sort of like a, a more than a craft based thing wasn't really something that was talked about I'm wondering about that Be what what in like when, when when we're talking about sort of how design is um, considered as a career, mm -hmm. how then is, is there any practical sense or any practical way to start to, is there any way we can change how design is understood by the general population? Or is it just one of those things that because of its very nature of being, right. having its fingers in so many pies, it is so hard to reverse engineer a brand. Right. Like when you talk about medicine. People know what medicine is. When we right. talk about law, we know what law is. When we talk about, uh, you know, accounting, you right. know, like just start picking careers. For some reason, design is doesn't fit. And I'm wondering, is, it, right. is it design's fault that it, no one really understands what it is? Is it something else? Right. right what is right. it? Well, I, I think the narrative of design itself has been controlled by a, a few people, a few individuals that really began to shape what was considered important or what was considered to be good design. Um, and we've held to a lot of these beliefs. We've created 
uh, design schools around philosophies and identities, uh, programs that continue to share uh, perspectives of designs from, um, I just call it perhaps a, a white-centeredness um, approach, which excludes a, really a large portion of the, the world. Um, so I think once you, once you change the narrative of design uh, and what is considered good design and squarely put the focus back on the purpose of design, which is to, from my perspective, um, design is to augment one's sense of feeling and being experiencing what it is to be human, uh, it, start changing the, it starts to change the complexity of the conversation around design. Uh, to move away from just one sort of idea of an aesthetic or a process, but to really understand uh, a group of, of people that you're designing for and then engage in great conversations and activities to really understand what their needs are and trying then to look at it as design, as a, as a mechanism, as a tool to provide the very best solutions to meet the needs of those people. Okay, so you brought up a very interesting point. You said design schools. Right, mm -hmm. design schools as both a product and a producer of this Eurocentric mentality, this right. idea that design looks and functions in a, within a very narrow bandwidth of what we quote unquote success. There's, right. there's good design, there's bad design. bad design. Good design falls into this very tight rubric. Bad design is everything that doesn't. Right, right. Um, and design schools both uh, perpetuate and reinforce that mentality. So let's talk about design schools. Right. What, uh, where are we at with, I mean, there is, a, there are slow changes. Oh, absolutely. But it, everyone's in a, in a, in a, a mood of not fast enough right. sense these days. It's like, why is this taking so damn long? Right. And again, I keep coming back to my original point. I would think that a design school should be primed. In fact, should be one of the first right. to say, uh, or to prove, not just to say, to prove change is happening. Right. But anyway, that being said, change is happening slightly. But where, uh, you know, help us, help us kind of see the map. Where are we at when it comes to the education side of things? How right. are design schools re reacting? But how are they re hopefully reacting smartly with an open mind? Right. And pr practically, what right. can they do? Right. Because schools don't really go out to recruit. Or do they? I don't know. In my mind, I don't think they do unless they're recruiting football players. Right, but right, right. Well, they, they, they do recruit, but through means of, of marketing uh, in which uh, schools and school boards uh, are invited to uh, have conversations and engage with uh, the potential of, of being involved with a particular institution. Um, but, but I will start with the, the first part of your, your question. I, I do believe there is an awakening. Uh, that has happened uh, within the last, I'd say, five to seven years. Uh, things have accelerated in the last two years. Um, I always point to the fantastic work that uh, uh, Dean uh, Dory uh, Tunstall is doing at OCAD, um, who's, she's bringing a lot of focus around the idea of decolonizing education. And really at its core, it's about acknowledging that there are other means and mechanisms to express the ideas of craft, art, and, and design through a wider spectrum, a wider perspective of, again, what I say, hum humanity, uh, and engaging in those people with those people um, that have various and diverse perspectives 
to allow them to be a part of the discourse of, of education in sharing ideas and, and knowledge and engaging in discussion um, in order to bring this perspective into the context of how this information can be applied to the worlds and the spaces that we occupy. Uh, and that happened specifically um, at OCAD where they have just hired the uh, first uh, six, I believe, uh, black uh, design professors in the schools, I think 143, 144 year history. Uh, but it takes leadership to sort of recognize where these gaps and blind spots are in order to put individuals in place that have vision, that have skill, uh, and, and really have the fortitude to press through sort of some of the systematic challenges that uh, present themselves whenever you're trying to change uh, something or bring light to uh, uh, a circumstance or a situation. There's always going to be the, the challenge of proponents that are for and, of course, those that, that are against. Uh, and it takes a special individual to sort of understand the issues on both sides to order, in order to put forward a, a path forward in order for there to be real productive, productive change. Uh, and for me, uh, Dean Dory is, is one of those individuals. So it's not just her. There are others that are out there uh, working diligently to bring about uh, change within, edu in, within the uh, education sphere. Um, we have to continue to make sure that leadership, executive leadership, those that are in uh, positions of making decisions, that there is diversity and representation uh, at those levels so that these conversations can be had um, more intentionally uh, and more directly in order to bring about the, the change that we, we, we recognize and know is, is needed. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I like what you're saying about how change needs to start I mean, keeping on the conversation of education, right. much of the change needs to start at the top. Change Absolutely. a lot of that has to do with the administration. Put the right people in place to start creating the seed change, start changing the vibrations of how thought is thought and Absolutely. transmitted. Uh, but I've always wondered about, and you touched on this earlier, um, again, the, 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 uh, for the longest time, design was seen through a very specific lens, mm -hmm. and the lens was housed in a box called the truth, shall we say. Right. There's a true way of design and everything else just doesn't really work. And that ideology eventually create, generates its own uh, gravity and is then uh, transmitted into the world via the curricula. Right. And I'm now wondering, how do you change that? So for instance, you put, you know, you put the right kinds of people in positions of the administrative uh, uh, architecture of a school, but how does that translate to the curriculum? Like how right. how would how would how would OCAD change the curriculum to now move away from a very Eurocentric, monolithic, very specific type of way of understanding right. design right, right. to a more embracing one? Do they do they just arbitrarily say, okay, boom, we're we're now bringing all these books that used to be considered. Uh, you know, uh, you know, right? Taboo, taboo or, or or not as not uh, right, right? And now we're saying they right, are right. Right. right, right? Or at least they're worth looking at. Right. Is it that simple, or it, how does this work? I'm curious. Right. Well, it it is really this simple. Um, representation allows for this type of of discourse uh, and perspective to be brought to 
strategic planning and execution of uh, a curriculum. And so when we talk about making sure that representation is happening at all levels, this is, this is why. Um, because it, it gives us an opportunity to see our world, the spaces that we occupy, differently, which engages perspectives that aren't necessarily at the forefront. And that only happens because <laughs> people sharing of themselves authentically pique the interest in, in each other. It's a, it's a very sort of human exchange. If we can simply express sort of the simplicity of caring about, well, what does design mean to you in your culture? How is it represented in the world and spaces that you occupy? And bringing those into a professional setting or an educational setting, it allows for then you to formalize ideas around those conversations that translate into curriculum that really then are infused into conversations uh, and studio courses um, that allow students to be engaged in ways that they hadn't been before. Uh, and that's why representation, I, I think, is key in order to start sort of changing some of the, the, the challenges that we see with, with design curriculum in particular. Um, the other realization that I think we have to uh, bring to light is that from a cultural standpoint, we know that now that our brains are wired differently. So we, from culture to culture, see and engage with space differently. So when you're in a design context and when you're teaching in a design school that doesn't acknowledge or engage with those worldviews of, of how design is, is uh, presented in, in other people, then we're doing our students a disservice. And by virtue of that, we're doing our industry a, a, a disservice because those students, those emerging professionals, are then sort of brought into professional environments and aren't necessarily allowed to, to bring their authentic selves uh, to the design uh, story uh, as well. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, that is, that is a really important point that you just brought up because in, when I hear that type of thing, what I see is how that point overlaps to very, uh, it's almost like it's, it's the middle ground in a Venn diagram and you have two, right. two circles. One circle is education, the other circle is professional practice. Right. And the overlap is that point at which the students now become practitioners. Practitioner. And right. there's the, always been this, um, I have to choose my words carefully here because I don't want to, well, I don't, this I don't, is I don't a safe to, space. We're, we're, we're good. True, but it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a lover of semiotics, and so I'm very, I try to be careful about how you say something, and that opens a pathway to one, arc, one discussion. Right, right, right. Really, we should be talking about something else. But to me, the relationship between education and uh, the professional world in the world of design has always been an oddly sick, it's like a sickly child relationship. Like right. the, the students that move on into the professional world are carrying those those method, those right. uh, philosophies and, and uh, ideologies into a professional sphere. Right. And much of the criticism about the education uh, world if, as it relates to design, the, the design education system, is that it really it's just constructed to get students ready to get hired, yep. to get accredited, and then right. instantly start to right. uh, generate uh, a client base right. or help a firm perpetuate a client base, all kind of stuff. You're absolutely right. It's, it, 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 
again, it's a byproduct of the industrial revolution idea of you're just creating cogs right. to facilitate uh, a machine. So right. when those two cogs come together, education and, and practice, I'm wondering, you know, which turns which more can do we have the luxury of time to just say if we just put all our energies into changing as much as we can the education system right. so that that uh, cohort will move into the professional sphere and then move through the professional sphere and right, right. revolutionize this the profession right. well on a, on paper that sounds practical but it, uh, in a real world setting that's like 40 years from now yeah it, yeah we, we don't have that long to no. wait <laughs> so where where do we put our right. you know where do we where do we put our uh, our, our laser beams our, our right. energy right school practice so let's now talk about practice okay so what you know assuming that that there's students who have been exposed to the type of uh, revolutionized curriculum that you're describing they enter the professional sphere what are they met with what's what's that what does that world look like yeah well the the world looks very similar to the education world uh, from which they are first sort of introduced to sort of what the idea of good design looks like um, and so just to back up a little bit to, to what you said earlier they are absolutely interdependent uh, when you look at the design industry uh, there isn't one sort of segment that stands alone and functions alone. Uh, they are very much interconnected. Uh, and so when you look at the sort of how design plays out in the real world from a practice standpoint, uh, a lot of it is driven by um, the process of design because this process is what we tie our billables to uh, from a time uh, standpoint, a scheduling standpoint. In order to run our businesses, we've needed a measure in order to check to see, um, to measure our, our profitability. And, and time has been this, time and money has, has been this sort of measure. Unfortunately, what time and money does, it, it, it sort of produces a very sort of formulaic approach to how we develop design in a lot of ways. Um, and so what our education system has done really well, and you know, you mentioned this, is that teaching is sort of based on uh, an industrial uh, sort of perspective of how we're going to keep the conveyor belt moving. Um, and so there isn't really a, a huge appetite, or there hasn't been a huge appetite, to have this sort of disruptive thought or process inserted into the uh, sort of mechanism because then it slows down the one's ability to produce. Um, in a lot of cases, we are set up on a production model for um, design, uh, whether you're, you're speaking uh, architectural design, interior design, graphic, we're, we're sort of follow the same methodology of producing something. The best thing we can produce in the least amount of time in order to deliver on uh, the requirements of scope, and then we sort of want to move on as quickly as we can to the next client so we can do it again. And our goal is to do that as many times as possible in order to bring in as much uh, profit. And so I think that's where the greatest opportunity is to sort of create the, the biggest uh, value for one's educational experience and uh, professional practice 
is to sort of reimagine the, the sort of real value of what it means to be a designer. Uh, and that is, yes, at our core, we have to produce something for our client because this is what we're selling. But we actually have the ability uh, through these two entities to sort of reimagine what is best, what is better, what is good, what is most human uh, for the worlds and the spaces that we're occupying. And that can only happen when we slow down a little bit and engage in conversation around how we are best designing for the people that we are serving. Um, and so moving away from uh, a strictly transactional model, uh, which is what design practice is really sort of based on, we exchange ideas for fees, uh, to seeing how, do, how can we focus on the opportunity that's prevented to transform uh, this particular part of a project, this particular interaction, whether it's with a student um, practitioner or with a client or an entity, like we have to sort of think more broadly of, about how this representation that we're, we're wanting to see in the world can actually be uh, fused together to inspire thought, but also be implemented in, in the world that we see. Well, I mean, forgive me, but I'm going to take a word that you said mm -hmm. and extract it and put shine a light on it because it feels like it's the word that is going to ring in the ears the loudest of, of our listeners. Right. Uh, and that word is profit. Profit, It's yes. a profit-driven industry. Absolutely. It's in a profit-driven world, at least the world we live in. Now, right. that's part of the discussion is that right. the world we live in, meaning capital W West, doesn't necessarily represent the entire planet and everybody right. on it and right. their perspective of, of, of the world. Right. But let's be honest, it's the world we live in. So right. uh, business operates off of profit. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on that for a bit. I wanna talk about that a bit because I'm mm -hmm. wondering, is there a way we can, is there a way that this conversation either is at, or if it's not, can we push it towards? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not talking about your and my conversation, right, I mean, right, right. the bigger conversation we're having here. Um, is it at a point, or can we push it towards a point where we can monetize the and illustrate the value of issues of inclusivity, representation, broadening right. perspectives, creating more diversity of outcome, right. which comes from a diversity of practitioner, right, all that kind of stuff. Um, can, are we there? Can we have that? Are people in a mental space where they are, will, where they will understand what we're talking about? Right. Or is that a different, is that like binary code right. to people who read Shakespeare? Right, Does right, it just right. not make sense to them? Well, I think we definitely have not reached a tipping point. I think there is an awareness that we're just at the beginning of. Um, I'm having more and more conversations with some groups and teams and companies that are trying to understand what really is the essence of inclusive, inclusivity and how that relates to space. The challenge that I think remains is understanding what is the value proposition of that. And so how does it tie into, so is it going to make my people more productive? Is it gonna make my spaces um, less expensive to operate? Like what, what is the, the financial impact uh, of this inclusive design? Is, it, is the monetization easily understood and adopted so that I understand that I'm making more money from this? 
so that I will invest in a process that allows me to do this. Honestly, I, we're, we're definitely not there yet. I think there are companies that are, are trying to investigate how they can do this better. Uh, there needs to be more work done um, from a research standpoint uh, and more studies done to see sort of where the real impacts are, are happening that people understand is sort of tangible profit points, uh, as I sort of call them. But we try very much uh, now with my company, Decanthropy, to understand sort of what is the cost of continuing the status quo. Um, and costs are really sort of uh, looked at from, again, diverse angles. We, we can look at the hard cost of, again, this sort of transactional sort of dollars in, dollars out. But we have to also understand what, what are the, the social impacts of of not engaging inclusively with uh, what, either it's your, your workforce or your, your customer, your end users. Uh, what is the cost of, of understanding um, that productivity actually uh, is diminished around teams that are not diverse um, because they're, they don't have the luxury of being able to look at uh, ideas or concepts from uh, um, multiple uh, perspectives to drive innovation. Uh, we know that diverse teams have the ability to do this. And when you start looking at, at brands trying to distinguish uh, themselves within the marketplace, the, the best way to do this is through representation uh, all the way uh, along the process uh, of developing uh, designs. Um, the, the last thing for me is really understanding that representation has to be one of those things that is, in essence, mandated. Um, we mandate cultural uh, norms within societies to ensure that there is uh, expectation that is set for interaction with people, uh, with uh, forms of, of government um, and uh, like justice apparatuses and, and all those types of things so that society set uh, a standard for what is deemed appropriate. And uh, f from the standpoint of design within the context of sort of corporate settings, we have to ensure that design in itself is, that representation is, is mandated. Uh, so this, this happens through policies and of course through standards. Okay, you just said something that ignited a bomb in my brain. I don't know if <laughs> uh -oh. we'll have time to get into that because I had other things I wanted to bring up. Okay. Um, in fact, what I want to, I want to spend a couple minutes and go back to exactly what you just said, mm -hmm. which is, the cost of maintaining the status quo. Right. In very clear terms, what is the cost? Well, I think loss of, of market share, a loss, a loss in authentic representation. Um, we know that there is this burgeoning uh, economy that's happening based on sort of social capital. Uh, a lot of companies are, are paying a lot more attention to it. And those that want to continue to work the way that they're working and produce the way that they're producing um, in a way that's quickly becoming antiquated are, are going to start losing uh, their audiences uh, and their, their market shares. Because the, the world, and we are now in sort of this dispensation of this exponential growth, things move so much more quicker, of course, because of uh, technology, but also because we're, we're, we're closer to, to each other. Uh, yeah than I think we have been in human history in terms of access to information around one another. 
Uh, and that's having an impact on what communities of people are investing uh, in uh, that are aligning themselves with. So when you start seeing the, the movements of these communities that, you know, if you are not engaged in the uh, authentic representation of who you are as a brand, there's going to be a community of users that are not going to at all be interested in aligning themselves with, with the work that you're doing or what you offer. And so for me, the, that is a greater threat to organizations from a cost perspective, because it is through representation that you're going to be, be able to represent uh, the ideals of your brand in an authentic way that resonates with the widest groups of people possible. Okay, so right there you said something that's really interesting that I think a lot of people, they, they understand, they hear the words. Mm -hmm. They're not sure how to execute it in a practical sense, but they hear the words, they understand what you mean. Because you said, it's almost like a, a spell, a, a magic right. code. You said marketplace, right? Right. You said, so that's a business, business issue, a business mentality. And I'm going to use that to go to what I said a minute ago about right. how you ignited a bomb in my brain. Because let's go from marketplace to the other words you said. Right. In fact, another M word. Mandate, mandate, marketplace mandate. My question to the latter is when we talk to uh, stalwart believers of capitalism, they right. say the worst thing right. is uh, policy or mandates. Right. You see uh, up and down successful entrepreneurs getting right. really ticked off where their feathers are ruffled when uh, they start to hear that governments are going to start mandating Paris Accord related things to right. try and achieve uh, standards for global warming. and diehard capitalists say, just let the market figure it's the marketplace figure right. itself out right, right. let you know you, if you push people to buy something they hate it so right. they'll buy something else the second right, right. someone else comes in they'll go that way now I'm not I'm not advocating that I'm not right. saying I agree with it right, but right. certain capitalism does seem to work at least on it's it's the best of the worst situations left on the planet right someone once said something to that effect I'm mis I'm sure I'm paraphrasing or misquoting right, but right. Uh, so let's, let's get back to the point here. So you said marketplace, but mandate. How do you reconcile the two when we're talking about representation? Do you just right. wait for the market to push the dinosaurs away right, right. and reward those who are open-minded and now see what, how things are changing? Right. In essence, they see the writing on the wall, and the writing is with a big, colorful crayon, not a, right. a, a single color right, right, right. pen. Uh, do you just wait for that? or? Do you still think we got to go? There's got to be some kind of policy, yeah, to so, to you know push the the people who are in lead boots right forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Both forces are required in this conversation. Uh, you know, companies are producing items and elements that are are demanded by a marketplace. Um, that's sort of one of the the. the basic tenets of, of business. There needs to be a demand for the service or the product that you're offering. Um, but there also has to be individuals that are recognizing that there is a better way to produce for our marketplace. Um, and it, it's funny, I, I'm not sure that there will, would be a, a, a business person or a, a successful business person that would say, if I found a better way that was more human that would drive more engagement that would make me more money that would disagree with the idea of a mandate if it was going to be favorable for 
their own bottom lines and for the products that they were delivering and for the people that were utilizing these products, to me, that 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 is the the win win win, uh, and so the the two are are necessary. You're you're gonna you need a marketplace that's demanding better, but you have to have professionals that are actually pushing companies to make sure that they are held accountable to producing uh, what they are producing, what they're putting out in the in the world, with the best methods possible. And that's where the mandates, the, the mandate needs to come in. Okay, so you, you said an interesting word there, accountability. Let's talk about that for a minute. Right. What does that look like to you? Like, what does that look, sound, feel like to you? Like, how do you hold accountable in the context in which we're talking? Uh, right. th- firms that are theoretically, well, not theoretically, firms that are in an industry that in and of itself is theoretically right. supple and open-minded and right, supposed right. to be a representational craft, so to right. speak. Right. So dial that back. How, how do you hold accountability in place here? Yeah. S- simply for me, it's, it's, it's showing your work. Y- you have to show either as an individual, a corporate entity, you have to show how you are engaging in the necessity of representation. Um, and that happens in many different ways. And in a lot of ways, is very unique to organizations themselves. But in order for it to be authentic, organizations and individuals have to bring themselves to the table and really account for how they are going to go about doing this work. This is actually where the the mandate is not a one-size-fits-all in in this instance, but it is to have the conversations to then create measurable elements and items that allow an organization or an entity to say, okay, Either we hit the mark or we didn't. And if we didn't, then we have to do something to do better and to share stories of how you're going to do better so that you will have something to show of what better looks like for you and your organization. And so it's not, it's not something that we can uh, sort of wave a magic wand and make every organization do. But what I do try to do is challenge each organization to find within their culture, within who they are and what they produce for the world, they have to find their authentic voice to what authentic, what representation means to them authentically, and then show that. So let's talk about that for a bit. We've been we've been talking within the sphere of, of professional practice. I want to stay in the sphere for a little bit more, and let's talk about what you just brought up. If you if you, if you don't mind, I would love to hear what you're experiencing when you take decanthropy to some of these uh, firms <laughs> that at first. S- just by the sheer act of saying, we'd like you to come talk to us. Right. It seems like they're interested, right. but then what? So I'm not saying, you know, right. drop name drop or anything like right, that. Right, we right, we right, can right. do this in you know, the beauty of anonymity, <laughs> but I'm just curious, Absolutely. if you don't mind, what some of your experiences are like and what you're encountering when you're in the trenches actually right. talking to these people on the other side of the table. Right. I, I got to tell you, if, the, if there's one word that that I could express would, would be fear. Uh, them or you? Well, them. Um, unfortunately, we've gotten to a place in sort of our discourse within this current point in time that we're not necessarily allowed to disagree with each other um, on various issues. And, you know, the idea of cancel culture or, you know, this sort of shaming, if we have different perspectives on things, has really... I think, 
been detrimental to the ideas and conversations around representation. Um, and so we spend a great deal of time creating an environment for these conversations to happen that are open, that are real, that are without sort of the shame and the, the judgment. And it's only when you have sort of a space to have these conversations that you can really begin to drive it why some of the challenges um, are being perpetuated in some of the organizations. I, I have not really <laughs> encountered anyone yet that said to me, Ian, you know, I just want to continue being a horrible human being, <laughs> or I don't want to engage in uh, methods that will help me do this better and to treat my clients better, to treat the end users uh, of our products better. Like these, these things are sort of foreign. They, they don't enter the conversation. What happens, though, is that we lock ourselves up because there is so much fear around maybe not sharing and understanding that you may have a blind spot. Uh, and we all do, regardless of where you are um, within your community, within sort of the corporate setting as individuals. We all have blind spots when it comes to each other. And it's only through engaging in some of these discussions from a perspective that says, look, you know, I actually care about you <laughs> um, and I want to find a way to do things better. Uh, and let's do that with honesty and integrity and openness that you can then sort of set the stage to, to start understanding, well, why do you think this way about this issue? Or why haven't you done uh, anything to change how your organization uh, is dealing with representation? And then how does that really shake out in your everyday world? We know that it's been popular to you know, send out a statement, to express solidarity with various groups, but that's not where the work happens. The, the work happens in the everyday of groups and organizations really tackling the way that they're working and the way that they're representing uh, this diversity that we need to see in the world within their practices and, and processes. When, it, when no one's looking, that, that's, that's when the real, real work is happening. Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of similar stories along that line and I'm just I'm curious so like you're in the room you go you get past the first couple phases of fear as you call it right uh, and once everyone kind of gives a collective exhale of okay whew, right uh, I'm not being judged exactly I mean we're all being judged but you know, you know what right I mean right right uh, they're like okay now what right so what is the now what what happens when you get past that collective exhale and it's right. like you know they're kind of receptive, right, right, but right. we human beings are creatures of habit. Absolutely. And you, you, made, you made the perfect point. We all have blind spots. Right. And not only do we have blind spots in a metaphoric or rhetorical sense, we literally have blind <laughs> literally. spots. A, 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 a cognitive psychologist will right. tell you Absolutely. how the eye, how the brain is programmed to not notice stuff that isn't a threat. Right. That alone right. is part of the reality of being a human being, right. you know, 100,000 years of evolution or whatever. Right. Right. So, yeah, we have blind spots. Right. Some we can do something, some we can do stuff about, some right. we can't. Right, right. So I'm just curious, after you get past that initial exhale, right. where does the conversation, where do you take the conversation? What do you do with uh, right. with your clients or your, your, your now lumps of clay yeah. molded? <laughs> well, it, it inevitably goes to insights and, and information. And so 
for us, we, we start with the, the thinking. Uh, it's important to understand how we think, why we think that way, and what we can do to change some of the ways that we're, we're, we're thinking. And so we really just focus on sort of the human aspects of, of how we think and how we need to think about humanity, which allows people to put themselves in the story. Um, a lot of the times, conversations around representation are so uneasy <laughs> for people that they stay on the periphery. And it, it, it's almost seen as if, you know, this is a problem that those people are having. Uh, and so not having the ability to insert yourself in the conversation really diminishes the, the richness uh, in the exchange of uh, the information and the, the change that's possible from that. Um, so once you have the opportunity to offer some insight, some information, then we sort of go through the process of sort of understanding how that information, how those insights translates first into leadership, because for me, leadership is key. Organizations are representations of leaders. Um, we delve into the leadership uh, level of organizations, and then we start unpacking, well, how is this how is this leadership reflected in your processes, within your people, uh, within your products, your approaches to, to how you are delivering the work that you're delivering? And then it, start, it starts getting into sort of the, the nitty gritty of how are we going to prioritize the change that's necessary within your organization to make sure that representation is authentic and real and is infused in, in every aspect of, of what you're doing. Um. I want to take some time before we. Uh, there, there's so much here we could we could spend a lot of time talking about. I, know, I actually it's a would big like, topic. and I actually would like to come back to some of these later on, and 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 you know bring bring tools that allow us to sort of peel back layers because there's so much of this. Like every good narrative has layers. Right. Every every it's like you know feel a dough. It's just it's better the thicker it is. Right. But the problem is to figure out if there's a problem, what the problem is, you got to peel right. back the layers. Right, right. Uh, it's an awkward metaphor, but <laughs> forgive me. But but fitting, fitting. But so at some point I would like to sort of come back and explore more things and we might not have time to do it today. Right. But while we still have time, there's something I want to put some attention on. And you brought it up earlier and it has to do with to a certain degree uh, external forces. Right. Left to our own devices, we're unlikely to change unless right. we are threatened or there's a really good incentive to do so. Uh, industries are a representation of that. Okay. So talking about the external force, let's talk a bit about uh, where advocacy uh, fits into all of this. Right. The design industry is an interesting beast because it its its form of advocacy or its, its mechanism of advocacy, somewhat of a third-party uh, entity, right. actually one would argue, has some clout. Uh, a lot of these groups are the ones responsible for writing things like certifications, right. um, requirements like LEED. Right. didn't exactly come from one company saying we're enlightened and everyone right. else has to f f fall into lockstep with right, us. Right, right. It took an external power, and now it's, yep. it's just part of doing business. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about advocacy. Where does that fit into this conversation? Organize, maybe we can specifically even look at organizations like uh, IDC, Arido in Canada, right. the various provincial associations in the states. There's um, ASID. Right. There's others. So let's 
let, let's I'll throw those out into the into the arena. Let's talk about how they fit into the issue right. of advocacy as it on a broader scale relates to what we're talking about. Right. No, absolutely. A- advocacy is is huge within our industry. Um, both so, sort of for the sort of functional purpose of designers uh, and the responsibilities that uh, in particular architectural and interior designers have in keeping people safe, uh, ensuring that products that are included within the in built environment uh, help to support this idea of, of, of wellness uh, and safety. Um, it's also important to distinguish uh, the responsibility of design professionals uh, within the spaces that they occupy to do their absolute best to serve uh, the, the users, the end users uh, of their, their, their spaces. And so advocacy from a professional standpoint is, is absolutely necessary. Where we, where we have to do a better job on, um, and this is part of my, my focus, is to ensure that we're advocating for humanity in terms of how our spaces, how the work that we're doing is actually supporting one sense of, again, feeling human. Uh, I, I love to say, because it rings true, and it actually reminds me um, everything that happens within our lives happens in a space that is designed. <laughs> so spaces are they're critical to one sense of, of well-being um, and one sense of, of feeling human. Uh, so we have to understand we have an awesome responsibility as practitioners to not only functionally serve uh, our communities, but we have to be mentally um, sort of aligned to actually understand the impacts of what this service means. We do offer a critical service uh, because, again, everything happens within the spaces that we design and de- develop. And so that's, a, that's an awesome responsibility. Uh, speaking with um, uh, uh, a group at a studio at a school, and I mentioned that you know, the, the cure for cancer is going to happen in a space that is designed. And so as practitioners, we have to have the foresight when we are, are coming to the design process to approach it with that level of, of care because we could actually be significantly impacting the quality of someone's life. And, and that advocacy needs to be supported, of course, by our provincial organizations and our national bodies that sort of infuse um, and inform and inspire our practitioners to continue to pick up this mantle and to deliver on this very important work that we're doing. Okay, so let's continue that. What can mm-hmm. they do? I mean, I know the, uh, the end zone is a nebulous concept. We don't really know what it looks like. We have right. a feeling about right. what it would look like, but to measure the distance between us and the end zone in yards, something right. as definitive as that seems impossible right. in, this, uh, in terms of where we are now. Um, but at the same time, it still feels like we need to throw the ball to someone. Is it we the, do. At the advocacy groups like the professional associations that are the ones that should be, that should be throwing the ball, catching the ball? Are they the refs to say you threw the ball wrongly? <laughs> I don't know. Like, where, what can, I, what I think can they're, they're, I think they're all. <laughs> well, really. The, there is, that's actually a legit point. Like, right, like right, right. Professional associations are staffed by professionals. Yes. By and large. I mean, right. there are some specialists. But uh, 
does that have how how does even does that fit into it like right. is, is that counter to the direction we're trying to right. nudge everything because as we pointed out bottom line rules all and if, right 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 if you're staffing it's like it's like staffing it's like well maybe to continue a tortured uh, metaphor if you put quarterbacks into you know zebra outfits and they became the refs right. would you get a fair game right would right they right. even know what's going on on the offensive line no they're right. all quarterbacks they don't know right, what's right. going on with special teams or anything like that so right. I don't know. I'm, this is this is literally a uh, like a theoretical discussion to a, to a certain degree. But can can are we expecting too much out of professional associations, or can they actually do something they, in they, a literal sense, like, right. like cleats on the on the field right, right. kind of way? Right. We, we we can absolutely do something. I, I think at our core, we have a responsibility to educate the the public, uh, of course, on what the the benefits of, of design and what design, the impact that design has on individuals, communities, um, practitioners, clients, because again, these elements are all interdependent. You can't have with one without, without the other. And so to be able to set standards um, and require that we observe them uh, is extremely important and is the job of associations to, to, do, to do this, uh, both with our um, sort of local, provincial uh, bodies, as well as, of course, our, our national institutions, governments, industries. We have a responsibility to bring all of these elements to the table and to at least point to the sort of North Star of what is best practice for delivering the work that we deliver for the communities that we serve. Um, and so that is a core function is necessary. Um, but we also have to make sure that we're taking care of our practitioners. Um, we know, and I know as a practitioner, that the design industry is its incredibly challenging. Um, to do this job at any level, uh, with any skill and care, requires a great deal of focus and sacrifice uh, in order to make sure that we're servicing our clients and our communities uh, to the best of our abilities. And that, that takes a personal toll on a practitioner. Um, whether it's health or family, um, we have to make sure that we are at least engaging in conversations of how we can practice better, how we can practice well, um, not only for ourselves, but also having these conversations with our, our clients and industries that are placing some of these demands on our practitioners. Uh, and so it has to be, uh, again, a far more open and honest uh, discussion around how to do design in the best way possible. Uh, and that too requires representation uh, in order to make sure that we're hitting the, the right marks. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about advocacy. We're talking specifically about uh, professional associations. I'm gonna throw something out here. Sure. Um, and it, it directly relates back to what you said very early in our conversation about mandates uh, and when I was introducing advocacy in the association side of things, I referenced how associations by and large are responsible for things like LEAD, right. GREEM, the WELL standard, stuff like that. Do you see any chance that there's something like that that can be applied to the problem we're talking about right now? Yeah. Can you actually quantify to a, a level of gradation where it's like you either get the LEAD stamp or you don't? It's right. very 
cut and dry. Can you apply that to what we're talking about here? Can there be something called a uh, representation standard right, right. that actually be can become letters that show up after your name in your right. automatic signature in your email? <laughs> right, right. That That's an interesting idea. So we, we do that as a company in terms of what we measure organizations are doing with in terms of the design process and how they are engaging um, creating solutions uh, and opportunities with the work that they're doing. So we, we, we are very much focused at measuring representation. Um, but I do believe that individuals, as we, uh, through our training, we, we're actually sharing <laughs> how to do uh, design with a more representational uh, uh, approach um, and allowing groups themselves to understand what does representation look like for you. Uh, because, uh, again, I don't believe it's a one-size-fits-all, but there are principles uh, that each uh, team, each group can follow in order to be on the path to doing this work authentically for themselves. Um, and so as you, you, know, you mentioned before, sort of these ripples uh, that happens when you know, change is required, uh, I do believe that representation has that ripple effect uh, within not only just practitioners and firms, but also, yes, the associations, but also the, the clients that we're actually working with. Um, because as this becomes a greater focus, and as more research is gonna come online to really point to the impacts uh, and the financial benefits of representation, which it, it is out there, um, but we have to more specifically assign what those benefits are to space. Uh, and have that quantified for those who are creating spaces, uh, converting spaces, those that are engaging in developing environments for people to work in, to uh, play in, to rest in, like all those types of things. It needs to be now a part of the equation for the, the financial feasibility study uh, of sort of the design impact. Um, and I believe once that hits a tipping point or critical mass, that this is going to be um, another shift in how we deliver design. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I mean, it, it, it takes a certain, well, you, you said you said yourself, it takes a certain critical mass. Like there comes yeah. a point where doing and doing and doing more and doing again and doing right. more and continuing to do, right. it creates a snowball effect and eventually, it, hopefully sooner rather than later, obviously, right. we get to that point where it, just, it almost becomes like second, Right. It's like, why right, right. weren't we doing this all along? And, you know, it's funny, like when I think about it in those terms, I, I try to take a one, two or 30,000 steps back, meaning right. <laughs> the airplane view and look at how all these parts fit, mm -hmm. are, are coming together or not and where we need to fill gaps. You know, we talked about education, we talked about professional practice, we talked about advocacy. Right. But design is such an interesting almost like a fog like it, it, there's no hard edges around right. it because it represents so much of the human experience right and the human complexity and quite frankly the human problem right the problem of being human right of which there's plenty um and because of that design both acts and reacts to what's going on around us and i think a lot of what is helping this conversation is the fact that there's so many other groups doing other things quicker than us, right. by us I mean design, right, that right. we are able to look at that and go, oh, look at what the entertainment industry is doing. Right. Okay, good. Let's 
this is creating an awareness. Oh, look at what the medis- the medical industry is doing. Right. Good. Let's let's pick up on that. Right. All right, these right. things are like tributaries feeding into a larger right, river, right. and hopefully we're all going downstream in the right direction. Right. You know, it seems somewhat disappointing, but left to our own devices, I don't know if there's any industry that is incentivized enough to do anything. Right. Why right. would you? Right? Change is hard. It, it, and it is. People hate hard right. things. They go right. out of their way to avoid hard things. Right. And this is not an easy conversation. This is a hard conversation. Right. And it helps that we see other people doing it. Absolutely. And I think, well, there's a couple of things. One, we, even within our, uh, let's just say our Canadian culture, we are very conservative. Um, and so we, we have a tendency to sort of wait and see how markets are going to shift and, and change. Uh, we're not always necessarily out front, um, but we're always assessing uh, to see how these challenges, how these changes and these disruptions are going to impact sort of how we are doing things. Um, I do think, though, that we have to play to our strength as designers because we have an innate ability to see things dimensionally. Um, We have this innate ability to distill what is the sort of core need. Um, And I would love to see practitioners sort of putting that skill uh, to work um, more in their daily sort of practices uh, in order to sort of, again, unlock this potential that ideas and concepts around uh, representation uh, sort of have for end users, really. I mean, that that's what it comes down to, and I think it sort of brings the conversation back full circle. At the core of what we do, like we are designing for people, um, and people are without edges, as, as you referenced. And so it's going to take a group of professionals that understand that there are these sort of limitless um, sort of possibilities with these this edgeless entity that shapes and morphs and changes over time in order to develop and design solutions that actually meet their needs as they're, they're going through this, this sort of constant change. And I think designers uh, are at the, the very forefront of, of those that should be leading the charge uh, to, to make change viable um, and, in some cases, comfortable. Um, at some point, uh, we know change is, is uncomfortable, but change inevitably should become comfortable uh, until it needs to be disrupted again. And that's just sort of the human experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really what it comes down to. You said to yourself, comfort. Right. There's a certain level of comfort until it becomes need. There's a need to disrupt the comfort. Right. But human beings are creatures of habit. Right. And, uh, you know, like it or not, as much as designers are notorious for being distracted by the new shiny thing and wanting <laughs> right. to be on the forefront, right. wanting to be part of the vanguard, like any human, Right. They're creatures of habit, and there's something I will remember till the day I die, and there's a good reason I'll remember it. Mm-hmm. What I will remember till the day I die is Mr. Warda, my grade 10 geography teacher, said right. over and over, repetition is the key to learning. Right. And why did that stick in my head? Because he said that phrase over and right. over and right, over. Right. Repetition's the key to learning. Right. I'll go to my grave quoting Mr. Warda right. for that uh, <laughs> That. that let's call it a both inspiration and a curse in my brain. Right, right. Uh, But he's right. Right. And I think this is the kind of thing, this conversation is exactly that. We need to keep having it over and over until 
it is second nature for us. Absolutely. I would also add that this conversation will continually need other voices to share their perspectives of what they bring to this this need for learning, this need to bringing this conversation back in front of all of us over and over again, because there is going to be different points, perspectives that are actually going to move the conversation quicker, further, faster into sort of real tangible solutions just by virtue of having that one spark or that one perspective that that wasn't there yesterday, right? So we definitely need individuals like you that are bringing this conversation to the forefront because it is a part of the process. It is part of who we are as professionals to continue to grapple with things that are that are so sort of ingrained into who we who we are as human beings. Um, and so this isn't going to change. It just has to keep getting better. Uh, the sort of aperture needs to keep growing and growing and growing as more voices are, are brought to, to the discussion. Uh, and it's inevitably going to impact decisions uh, and inspire things that show up in a world because someone had an opportunity to listen to this exchange that you facilitated today. So I, I, think, I, I, I think for me, that is the hope uh, in, in these types of forums, that this is going to spark the next conversation and then the next one. And as you mentioned, it's that critical mass that's going to really reach a, a tipping point. All right. Well, having these conversations, you say a spark, that's a perfect metaphor, like a spark right. that leads to a fire, that leads to a campfire. Right. People love coming to campfires when there are people talking and telling stories around that campfire. So I'll provide the campfire, but I need right. people like you right. to be telling the story around the campfire that will bring the other voices you're talking right. about. We'll make them who are standing out in the shadows go, what are they talking about yeah. over there? I want to go see. That looks pretty interesting. And right. they come over and suddenly our crowd gets a little larger and then they stand up and say, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to start telling the story. Right. So, Absolutely. You know, I, I definitely want to facilitate the conversation, but I need people like you to come to the conversation and help help give us a sense of like, where are we? What's right. the temperature of, of the patient? Right. What can we do? Right, right. And move it from there. Yeah. I think this is a perfect place to sort of bring it to a close. But like I said, I want to come back and talk about this more. So hopefully, uh, you know, we will do so soon and yeah, we'll new stuff I'd, to talk I'd, about. I'd, I'd love to do it again. This fantastic. is fantastic. Ian, I want to say thank you very much. This has been amazing, and uh, thank you, let's, Peter. Let's keep the campfire going. All right. All right. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring the marshmallows next time. <laughs>